Insurance and Injury Law Show, number, anytime, all the time. You know it, one 990 9646 Email is help at the Tons of stuff to cover on the show today. We'll get to uh, fightformyltd.com in detail, as well as the injury calculator uh, a little later on in the show. James, welcome back to the show, pal. Good to have you after a, a little bit of an absence there for the last few weeks. I know you've been terribly busy. Savannah and I have been doing the show and holding the fort, as they say, but I know you guys got a lot of stuff you want to sink your teeth right into. We always start with the uh, the week that was. Savannah, take it away, pal. Okay, John. Well, let, let me start with an interesting uh, scenario that just came up yesterday. Uh, we had a gentleman call us because he was cut off LTD, long-term disability, after being on it for two years. Now get this, John. Uh, he called us because, not because he was cut off, but because after he was cut off, the insurance company that just cut him off is asking him or, or telling him to undergo a transferable skills analysis. Now, for the listeners out there who haven't heard that uh, phrase before, that term, uh, that's a test that essentially uh, figures out what kind of skill set you have. To, so, and, and the insurance companies use that kind of a test to assess whether or not you can do any other job. And that's relevant in the context of disability claims because as many listeners who have listened to our show before know, uh, during the first two years of being on LTD, the criteria for eligibility is to show that you can't do your own job, your own occupation. Beyond the two-year mark, the question then becomes, can you do any other occupation for which you're suited for by training, education, or experience? So what insurance companies typically do is as you're approaching the two-year mark, they will have you undergo uh, any number of assessments, and this is one of them, a transferable skills analysis to figure out, okay, you can't go back to your job perhaps, but can you do any other job? Right. And on the basis of the results of that test, let's say the results uh, come back that you can do X, Y, and Z, and therefore you are suited to do three other jobs. They may tell you, well, then if you can do those three other jobs, then you don't fit the definition of total disability beyond the two-year mark. So on the basis of that, we're going to cut you off. Here, what they've done uh, is they've put the cart before the horse. Essentially, they've cut the person off, and now they want him to undergo this, this transferable skills assessment. And of course, it questions the basis for them cutting him off in the first place if they didn't yeah. have those tests. And of course, we asked them, you know, did, did you see any of their doctors? Did you undergo any other examinations or any other analysis uh, that the insurance company had perhaps uh, pr- uh, provided you or, or arranged for you? No, nothing. He was simply cut off at the two-year mark. And then after the fact, he stole to do one of those tests. So, you know, in my mind at least, and James, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, I'm thinking, well, first of all, if he's unable to go back to any other job, if we have medical proof for that, not only is there a legal claim against the insurance company for having cut him off uh, wrongly, unjustly, but I think that the fact that they're now doing this test after the fact may give rise to those extra contractual uh, damages uh, or claims that we've talked about before, punitive damages. In other words, to punish the insurance company for, in fact, having reached a conclusion before actually having the evidence or the proof for that conclusion. I, that may well be the case. I mean, certainly you want to take a look um, in detail at the file before um, you really draw any conclusions. But I think on a very practical level, um, what they're really trying to do is either justify or try to further support the decision they've already made. 
And at this point, having already been cut off, I don't think the letter writer here is under any obligation to submit to it. I agree. Um, he's not getting any benefits under the policy, so why should he have to submit to further testing? And let's be honest about this. If they're sending him for, for this testing, they're going to find something to use against him. They will. Huh. That doesn't mean it's going to be legitimate, but the people they have that are, going to, that are running the tests... They are going to find some other occupation that his skills, training, um, and experience will allow him to do, or that they say will allow him to do, that they will use as a post facto justification for the decision they've already made. And don't give it to him. There's no reason to give it to him in that scenario. You're just helping them strengthen their case against you. Um, and you know it may not be that strong to begin with, but if you allow them that you know that little uh, that foot in the door, um, then they may have you know leg to stand on if it comes out if there's a strong report from their expert, um, which you know as anyone who does this knows, um, you can always find an expert to say something that you're going to like, and the insurance companies have a roster of experts that say what they want to say, and if they didn't. They wouldn't be on the roster for very long. That's, that's very true. And John, this brings us back to the original point that we make on every show, which is that when insurance companies cut you off disability or, you, or they deny your claim, you know, don't, don't play their game. Don't appeal yeah. the decision. Don't continue cooperating, trying to perhaps persuade them to reverse their position. They're not going to. That's the reality. Uh, you have a legal claim at that point. If your doctors are saying you're unable to go back to work and you know that you're unable to go back to work legitimately and you know that what they've done to you now is wrong, give us a call and we will tell you literally within minutes of speaking with you or of reviewing your documentation, uh, which includes some medical documents perhaps you have, the deny letter, we can tell you if you have a case, if you have a legal claim. And both James and I have had people that we've spoken to we reviewed everything and we've told them you have a case and we've had people we've spoken to and we said to them, you don't have a case. Yeah. So we're very upfront about that. We will tell you exactly how it is. But if we tell you that you have a case, you have a case. You have no obligation to pursue that case. That's your choice. But at least you'll know you have a case. We'll take a, a short break. Get to more of that. Your questions and emails as well. You want to send one over. Plenty of time. Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. The number, of course, one triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six. The Insurance and Injury Law Show, right here, Global News Radio. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six. That's the number. Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. Lots uh, to get through this morning as we uh, we continue on. What do you got, Savan? What's going on? So I got an email uh, earlier this week. Again, from this is a gentleman uh, from Ottawa who emailed me this, and I'm going to read you uh, verbatim. He says, Hi, Sivan. My wife is going through the process of applying for LTD. She has been off work since March this year. Uh, and we're at the stage where the insurance company in their letter is asking for more additional information from her doctor, which she has done and mailed back to the insurance company. In that same letter, however, it says the following, quote, If you decide to take legal action against, and then there's the name of the insurance company, mm-hmm. please be advised that your claim is subject to a limitation period. This limitation is set out in the Limitations Act. Question, what does that mean? If they deny her claim, what is the window that we have to take legal action against them? And again, this is, it's a basic question, but it's a very important question. And again, we've talked about this a lot, and I want there to be no ambiguity. If you are denied or if you are cut off long-term disability, the date of your denial, the date of the letter that, that you received the denial on, you have two years from that time to start a legal claim. But remember, 
each one of these letters that you get that denies your claim or, or denies an appeal, if, if you've appealed a decision, uh, they always have something at the bottom of the letter that says that you can appeal that decision even more. In other words, you know, if you've been denied the first time, you can appeal it. And if you've appealed and you were denied, they usually, again, in that letter say you can appeal again if you have more documentation. Don't think that the clock resets every time you send in new documentation. The first date that you receive, or, or the first date I would say that's on the letter that you receive that denial or the cutoff of your disability benefits, you then have two years to start a legal claim. Beyond that two-year mark, in other words, a year and a day, and you have now compromised your ability to force the insurance company legally to pay your claim. And in very simple terms, what does that mean? It means that if you are owed money by this insurance company legally, after two years, you can't make them pay that money. They get to keep that money. There are very rare exceptions. There are exceptions there. You do not want to be fighting those exceptions. So that's what that means. Now, let me just make it clear. I'm not saying that people should wait those two years. And in fact, unfortunately, we do have people who come to us a year after having been cut off, a year and a half after being cut off, sometimes even more than two years after being cut off. There is zero reason to wait those two years or even a year or even a month. In fact, if you've been on LTD, generally, if they cut you off, they're going to give you advance notice. They're going to tell you, we're going to cut you off in a week, in a month, in six months. I've seen it as far as over a year in advance notice that they're going to cut you off. Why wait until that happens? There is zero reason. We've had cases where our, our clients were told, we're going to cut you off in six months. And because they came to us right when they got that letter that said that they're going to get cut off in six months, we were, ab- we were actually able to resolve the claim with the insurance company within those six months such that the individual we're representing had no time gap where they were receiving no money. And that's really the key here, right? Because if you have no money coming in, how are you going to pay the mortgage? How are you going to pay your right. kids' expenses? So very important, if you are told you're going to be cut off or if you've been just denied, give us a call immediately. Contact us immediately. There's zero reason why you should wait. James, what do you think, pal? I think I agree with absolutely everything Siobhan just said. Um, This is not something that is difficult. The longer you wait, the longer it takes to resolve. There is no advantage to waiting, especially because when you talk to us, there's no obligation consultation is always free. So you come to us, we'll tell you whether or not you've got a claim. And as soon as you get that denial letter, as Savon said, if you get it six months in advance of the date, they say they're going to cut you off, then come to us. Come to us. Consultation's free. You've got nothing to lose. Um, All you're going to get out of this is information and you decide what you want to do with it. We'll give you advice, but you make the decision whether you want to go ahead. And there's not going to be any hard sell. The decision is up to yours. If you want to go ahead with it, great. If you decide you don't want to, that's up to you. But waiting doesn't help. There's nothing to your advantage by waiting even a day. I think a lot of people, when they get that denial and it says at the bottom, you can appeal, I think people sometimes think since it's, oh, it's their insurance company, it's a big, bad insurance company, they're expected to, if not, they have to appeal. Like, oh, they're saying I should appeal. Maybe I should appeal. I don't think they, un- until you guys do this show, I don't think people know any better. I think they think it's mandatory or they're, or, they're, or they're prompted to do so, which is a huge mistake, right? Well, I think it's the word appeal. It sounds very official. It sounds uh-huh. like this is something that is set in stone. It is the process right. you have to go through. No. No, it's not. Um, This is a made-up process within the insurance company. They decide all of the rules. It is decided internally. 
They get to choose when it happens, how often you do it, what the deadlines are, whether or not they want to enforce those deadlines. It's entirely up to them. The purpose of it is, this entire appeal process, is to get you to avoid starting a legal claim. They don't want you talking to a lawyer. They don't want you bringing the claim in the legal system because as soon as you do, they lose control. And that's the last thing they want. That's that's true. And actually, one more point. You know, every once in a while, I just uh, look at other lawyers' websites uh, just to see, you know, what's what's new, what blogs they're writing, just to, to figure out if there are any original thoughts out there as to how to deal with insurance companies. Uh, you know, for us, that's it's more like a sport. I mean, we, we love going against them and we love beating them uh, when we do. And, and there was one website that I came across yesterday. And, you know, James, this is going to blow your mind. Uh, there was a, a big section there uh, that the lawyer was, was writing about, about how it is that he helps his client, uh, his clients appeal LTD decisions. There was nothing, <laughs> there was nothing, nothing about... I'm banging claims. my head against the wall here. That's ridiculous. I, yeah. I, I would love to just spend a few minutes with that lawyer and ask him about his success rate. Because again, <laughs> when you are appealing these decisions, as James said, it's an internal process. The insurance company maintains all the power. And this is what we're trying to convey to people out there. Yeah. You have the power. And where does that power come from? From the law. The law. When the insurance company comes to a mediation, when we're about to settle with them, they're not paying our clients because suddenly they've decided that you know they're going to be good, and and they just want to help your client. It's that's not the reason. They're doing it because they understand that in the long term they're going to expend a lot more money trying to defend the claim and then possibly lose if this goes before a judge. And it's only by forcing them to this reality that you can get them to the table and to pay out. And again, I'm not just talking about someone uh, from the perspective of someone who actually helps individuals in that situation, but as someone who worked for insurance companies in the past. That is the secret. Insurance companies don't like fighting these claims. It's too expensive for them. Let's make it very simple. Don't appeal. Give us a call. (laughs) Yes, exactly. 1-888-990-9646. one 9646 That's the number. Make the call. Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. We'll get to one more uh, piece, uh, one more question, or at least you had, uh, Savannah, after a short break, and then we'll get right into your emails. Blake, you're going to be the first one up, so stand by for that. Lots more of the Insurance and Injury Law Show is on the way. This is Global News Radio. one 9646 That is the number, of course. Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. That is the email me, uh, we use. You have uh, one more case I know, Savannah, you wanted to talk about for the week that was, and we'll move on to an email. What do you got? Yeah, again, so I, I got this email from this lady this time, and uh, here's what she wrote. She said, I'm currently on LTD for my condition with MS, multiple sclerosis. My payments are received on the 17th of each month. This past June, the insurance provider sent a letter to my neurologist outlining potential treatment assistance for my symptoms and has asked for a copy of my clinical uh, records uh, to include all the office notes, uh, diagnostic and laboratory test results, uh, and everything basically for my doctor. And uh, the neurologist advised the adjuster that he will respond to the requests after my next visit, which is scheduled for September 20th. This is when I will be given the results of my latest MRI test. Now, the insurance adjuster has verbally informed me that since my claim has only been approved until August 17th, they require this medical information before releasing any further payments beyond the state. Initially, I wasn't too concerned because I was told this verbally only, but after listening to your comments on your show, I'm not so sure. Even though I authorize the release of the detailed medical information, am I obligated to do so? So, you know, this is, it's an interesting question. Should she, what should she do in this case? I mean, she's seeing her neurologist 
late September. And uh, incidentally, I ended up talking to this lady because she she appeared in distress. So I, right. I told her, give me a call right now. Let's have a chat. And she told me that this is actually a new adjuster that came on the file. She's been on claim for a few years. And now suddenly the new adjuster is now you know, putting the squeeze is, is saying, no, I'm not interested in, in, in waiting and, you know, for a month to hear what your neurologist has to say. So this brings us to an interesting dilemma. Uh, you know, can the insurance adjuster simply cut her off because she is not providing those records? But she's not saying she's not providing those records. She's simply saying that her neurologist is saying that he can provide the additional information once he sees her on September 20th. My, my response to her was, listen, if you can provide this information, provide it. Don't give the insurance company an excuse to cut you off. But here's what I think you should do. Put your thoughts in writing. Email the adjuster. Because up until now, this has only been done by phone. Tell the adjuster in writing that you've received the request. This is what, and, and you've asked your neurologist to provide that information. And here's what your neurologist has said. And that you are fully cooperating with the insurance company. And, and the reason for putting that in an email is because if the insurance company ends up taking the most extreme measure, which is to cut her off, I actually think we have, again, a claim potentially for punitive damages against the insurance company for cutting her off on essentially what appears to be not only a technicality, but something that makes no sense. The neurologist says, I'll give you this information. So again, you have a situation where you have a very aggressive adjuster who is adding to all the stress that this individual is suffering, and, and she is suffering. She has advanced MS completely unfair, completely unwarranted, and there is a way to fight back, but you have to, this is why I'm telling people, call us, get this information. Maybe you haven't been cut off, but you're afraid you're going to be. So give us a call and we'll tell you exactly what we think you need to do to either prevent them taking that extreme measure or positioning yourself in such a way that if they do take that measure, we can hit them extremely hard back. I agree with everything you just said. Um, I want to underscore one part of that, which is the writing uh, or detailing in an email the conversation. It's important, of course, to put your own position in writing, but it's equally important that you put the adjuster's position, what they said to you, what they said, what the adjuster said he was going to do if you don't comply. You want to make sure that there is a written record of that, of that position being taken by the adjuster, and that you send it to the adjuster right away. And the reason for that is because once you put it in writing, once you've sent it to the adjuster, they are then forced to make a decision that they are going to have to stand behind. Either they deny having said it, in which case you're fine, or they stand behind it, in which case there's a record of it and they can't deny it in the future. If they don't respond to that, if they don't deny having said it, they're stuck with it. And that's good. Either way, you're in a better position having written it down. So by all means, certainly do that. The other thing I want to point out is, you know, the question of whether they can do this or not. There's two ways to really interpret that question. One is whether they're legally allowed to under the policy. Um, there is an argument maybe that they can because you're required to provide them with records, but it seems in the circumstances we're talking about here that it's quite unreasonable. Someone who's been getting benefits for quite a long period of time, who is complying in every way possible, and who is requiring a couple extra weeks for a very specific purpose, it seems quite unreasonable. From the neurologist. It's not her right. who's saying it. Understood. It's the doctor. Yeah, and so you know, in those circumstances, that seems pretty unreasonable to, to cut this uh, letter writer off. Um, but can they do it um, just as a matter uh, of, of action? Yes, of course they can. They can and they will. They do things that they're not allowed to under the policy 
all the time. So whether or not the policy entitles them to, they can. And if you don't hold their feet to the fire, if you don't force them to stand behind what they've said on the phone, then yeah, they will. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six. The number, guys, and help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. That would be the email. Blake, you are up. As promised, says uh, my wife is fifty five and is on long term disability for mental illness. She was uh, recently notified by the insurance company that they are taking issue with her treat, uh, treatment regimen. She has a psychologist that she's been seeing for the past five years. The insurance adjuster says that my wife should be going to another therapist and is pushing her to see their psychiatrist for treatments. Can they force her to do that? There's very little that is going to make me more upset than this kind of a this kind of an email. Um, insurance companies should stick to what they know, and that's not treatment. Uh-huh. Um, this person is getting treatment. Blake is uh, Blake's wife is getting treatment. For mental illness and the relationship that's developed between uh, a, between a doctor and their patient is one where the insurance company should never, never stick their nose in between there, unless there's something that is obviously inappropriate. And that certainly doesn't seem to be the case there. Uh, there's just no reason for the insurance company to insist on switching treatment providers, um, unless you know your wife is uh, suggesting in some way that she isn't happy with the treatment that she's getting, then fine. They can make whatever suggestions they want. But to force her to move treatments is completely unacceptable. If they if they actually went through with this and you know cut her off if she refused to do it, they would open themselves up to an immediate claim for punitive damages, and they would know it. They would know it too. So I, I don't imagine that they would follow through on that. But then again, if you know they don't think that you're going to seek legal help, they may well do it and roll the dice. Uh, but no, they can't force you to change treatment providers. They can say that they want you to also see their treatment provider. It would be strange, but if they wanted to do that, they could. If you didn't comply, they you know can cut you off. It doesn't mean that they're legally entitled to, but they can do whatever they want to do and roll the dice that you're not going to seek legal help. So you just have to be aware that you can refuse, and I would suggest if you're comfortable with the treatment, you ought to. But if you do, there may be a consequence, and that consequence is they may well cut you off. And if they do that, then we challenge them. Then we bring a le- then we bring a legal claim to challenge them because they're not entitled to do that under the policy. One of the things that uh, I just thought about as you were giving uh, your answer is what you just said a few minutes ago, which is that uh, disabled individuals who are communicating with their adjusters should actually confirm in writing certain things. And even in this case, if, if the person is feeling pressured by their adjuster to do something that they don't feel comfortable or is in, um, or, or, or perhaps is contrary to one that, what their own treatment providers are saying, express that in writing just with a simple email to the adjuster just so that there is a record that you have raised that red flag with your adjuster. And whether or not they respond is not as relevant as the fact that if there is a legal claim down the road, we can now examine the insurance representative and look at their file and point to all these instances where you have raised all those red flags on, and all of those concerns, all of, all of which were ignored by the insurance company. Again, that strengthens your claim that you're not just coming up with this stuff after the fact, after you've been cut off, but that you have been concerned about these issues uh, th- th- throughout the life of the claim. And again, that goes to you know, the arguments that the insurance company has taken a step that is unjust and wrong and should pay for. 
We'll take a, a short break, guys, as we get to more questions and emails. The number to get a hold of Savan, James, the rest of the team, simple, one 990 or help at the Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six. Help at the insurance lawyer You know, guys, you previously mentioned that uh, in many instances, you resolve LTD disputes with insurance companies at mediations. Tell us uh, how often you go to mediation with insurance companies, and then what happens at that mediation, as opposed to going right to court, right? Mediation is pretty much on every single LTD file. Uh, there may be the odd one that we're able to resolve before mediation. But our experience is that when we get a file and we write to the to the insurance company, they're eager to come to mediation, and they're eager to do it usually quite quickly, much more quickly than we see uh, in injury claims, for example, by comparison. And the reason for that is pretty straightforward. If you're listening to our show, you know that these insurance companies are pulling things that they know they're not supposed to be doing, and they're counting on you not seeking legal help. As soon as you do, as soon as they see that there's a legal claim there, they know they're done for. They know that when you examine the file, it's going to reveal all of the things that they've done that they're not supposed to, that the policy says they can't do. So they're pretty eager to come to mediation and get it resolved. There's nothing in it for them to drag it on. Um, it doesn't make any sense for them to pay you know, their, their lawyers to handle more files. It just means that they would have to hire more lawyers, and that's just another expense to them. So as soon as they get the claim, they know, okay, we got to figure out a way to resolve this as quickly as possible. Um, and you know, from their perspective, for as little as possible, but we have something to say about that. But our experience as far as mediation goes is that it happens usually pretty quickly. And in legal terms, that means within a year usually. Um, and that it is on virtually every case. And in many cases, it happens uh, earlier than a year. And, and just so that new listeners understand what mediation is, it's a step in, in the legal proceeding uh, where the insurance company, let's say an adjuster, not the adjuster that was dealing with the claim when the person was still on claim, but a new adjuster, the one who's now assigned by the insurance company to deal with the case because we've started a legal claim, that adjuster, their lawyer, us, our client, and then a neutral third party, usually a lawyer who has experience in this area, we go into a room, this is not court, this is, this is an office environment. And uh, essentially, the lawyers do all the talking. It, it's actually not, it, it's, it's not something that, that is, you know, well, actually, let me back up for a second. Most people, when they think about court, you, you, you know, you think about TV and you think about this one person cross-examining this somebody else. And that's not mediation. The purpose of mediation is to try and resolve the dispute. It's a negotiation, essentially, that happens. And our clients generally don't actually say anything at mediation unless they really want to. They let us do all the talking. And to be honest with you, John, whether a mediation takes a few hours or takes the whole day, most of our clients, not only are they pleased with the final result, but frankly, they, f- they find the whole process a little bit, uh, I would say, even boring. And the reason I say is because there's no, no major excitement. So when we say that we settle these cases at mediation or even sometimes even before, it, it's not with all the fanfare that you see on TV. Okay? It, it, it isn't not, Perry Mason or Law and Order. No, it's none of that. It's, so, so people need to understand that by, by coming to us and having us help them, and start a process with the insurance company, you're not going to, in the vast majority of cases, end up on a stand somewhere getting cross-examined by, by some TV lawyer. It doesn't happen that way. What happens is that we start that claim, the insurance company responds, they assess their exposure, what's going to happen 
if in fact they had to go before a judge, most of them realize they're not interested in that. And that's when we go to that office environment, not court, an office with a neutral third party who just tries to help the parties negotiate and resolve. And I can tell you, John, also that uh, in three jurisdictions in Ontario, mediation is actually mandatory. In other words, we have to go to mediation. Insurance companies have to mediate claims. And that's in Toronto, it's in Ottawa, and it's in Windsor. But guess what? Even if you're from Barrie, or even if you're from the outskirts of Ottawa, or you are, I don't know, somewhere else, you know, Kingston, guess what? Insurance companies, for the most part, are still interested in resolving these disputes. The longer these uh, cases go on and on, the more money they have to pay their lawyers to fight them, and they're not interested. So be aware of that, that again, there's no magic to it. It's, it's actually not the high stress that most people envision. And in fact, even when I meet with clients and explain this to them face-to-face, they're all, you know, very often very skeptical. And even when they, when they come to mediation, they're very, you know, they haven't slept the night before. And I understand that completely. But I'm telling you, it's, it's very low stress because the whole purpose of that process is to resolve the case. It's not to fight it. So no one's basically jumping up and saying you can't handle the truth. No, nothing that exciting. Nope, is nothing that exciting. That's what you're saying. No, yeah. nothing that exciting. And it's between the lawyers and 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 frankly, you know, our clients see the whole process. I mean, they're yeah. they're, they're spectators there. And of course, you know, they're the ones who are calling the shots. And, and this is the other thing to remember: while the lawyers are negotiating, really the decision makers ultimately are the adjuster and mm-hmm. our client. Right. And guess what? In the vast majority of cases, it's our client that holds the majority of the cards. It's not even the adjuster. The adjuster has a mandate to close down the file. The number is one 990 9646 Email us, help at That's exactly where we're going to go after a short break. Right back in your emails. Right here, this is the Insurance and Injury Law Show on Global News Radio. one 990 9646 help at You want to ask a question through email. Sonia, you're up. Uh, Sonia writes in, says, uh, my brother-in-law hit by a car last month and was rushed to hospital. Where they had to do surgery on his back, he's still in the hospital, and the family doesn't know what to do. Uh, there have been lots of lawyers trying to speak with him, and they are overwhelmed with everything. Can you please explain uh, what they should be doing legally now? My brother-in-law is 28 and was working as an electrician. He is married with a two-year-old baby girl. Uh, he may have trouble walking for a long time, according to his doctors. Sonia, thank you so much for writing to us. So let me answer your question first very simply. There are two processes that you can start uh, when you've been in a car accident. The first is called accident benefits, and this is a claim with your own insurance company. So your brother-in-law would start a an insurance claim with his insurance company that would pay him up to $400 a week in income replacement benefits. It would help pay for his medical and rehabilitation. Uh, it would also help pay for attendant care, which is especially useful during the first few months uh, after you've been injured, particularly in a serious injury, where you may need help help with your day-to-day care activities, so bathing, um, getting dressed, those types of things, where you may need help. They will pay for someone to come in and provide you with assistance on a day-to-day basis until you're able to do that on your own. So this is really useful, especially at the outset, and especially when you now have no money coming in, it brings in the $400 a week. Now, that's not a ton of money, and it may not be enough for a lot of people to get by on, but it's better than nothing, and it gets the ball rolling. The other part of the process is, of course, bringing a legal claim against the the driver of the car that was at fault. 
for for hitting your brother or your brother-in-law. I apologize. And so, you know, that is um, what you may think about, um, you know, you're suing somebody for having done something wrong to you. And in that kind of a claim, you're seeking money for the, the lost income, both up to the date of a settlement and into the future, if your brother isn't at that point able to um, have returned to work. You're also seeking money for your future care. You're seeking money for housekeeping. If he was part of a union and there's a pension loss or anything like that, um, then you'd be seeking money for that loss as well. Essentially, anything that uh, has affected him, you can bring a claim for um, under the under the legal claim. So there, there are those two avenues. Now, what should he be doing? Give us a call. Um, we're happy to talk to you as well, too, Sonia. Your brother-in-law doesn't have to do it himself. We're happy to give you the information if you'd like, and you can pass it along to him. We certainly um, don't want to put any more pressure on your brother-in-law. We're happy to provide him with information through you if that's going to be the easiest way to do it. Or you can certainly have him give us a call if he's up to it. Either way is fine. But the key here is to make sure that the ball is rolling on this, that we start both processes as soon as possible. Number one, the accident benefits, money is going to start coming in very soon as long as we've started that process if it hasn't been started already. And number two, the legal claim. That can take a little while. A legal claim can take a couple of years sometimes, but you don't want to wait to get that started. The longer you wait to get it started, the longer it takes to resolve. So in both cases, it's important that you get the ball rolling sooner than later. So that's really all he has to do is get the information, give us a call, and we're happy to provide it. Consultations are always free. So you calling us, there's no obligation on you or him whatsoever. Yeah, one, one, one other thing that I wanted to, actually two other things I wanted to mention, Sonia, that um, just came to mind as James was, was giving his answer is, number one, you've said that there's been a lot of lawyers trying to speak with, uh, with them and they're overwhelmed. And, you know, unfortunately, again, it's one of the reasons why I think our profession has, uh, uh, to an extent, a negative, uh, uh, there's a negative connotation with personal injury lawyers, of course, from, from movies and, and Hollywood and, and, you know, frankly, from some of the advertising that we've seen out there. It's very, very important that the family feels comfortable with the lawyers. Uh, if a lawyer is too pushy, if the lawyer is not explaining anything, if the lawyer is not does not appear to be empathetic, but you know it's just a business transaction, you have to be very careful of that because that's a sign of what's to come down the road, that you're just a file. So that's not to say that we're the only lawyers out there. Absolutely not. There are excellent, excellent lawyers out there, but you know what? They're also... The type of lawyers that I, I would tell you to stay away from. You have to be very, very careful. The, the other point I want to make is this, uh, and I agree completely with everything James said about the two claims, accident benefits and the tort claim against, the legal claim against the person who uh, was responsible for the accident. In many instances, unfortunately, I have seen both on the defense side as well as on the plaintiff side, uh, some firms start the accident benefit side and then not engage on the other claim, the legal claim against the at-fault driver for a year or even two years. Now, in some instances, there is justification for it. I mean, you want to see if the person, you know, if it was a light injury, if it was just mild back pain, maybe it's going to go away in a few weeks, a few months. I understand. You, you know, Not you don't in this to, case. Not in, no, no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Not in this case. If you have a serious case like the one that Sonia is talking about, you start the legal claim now immediately. And the reason you do that is because, as James said, it's going to take some time to resolve. And you want all of the relevant insurance companies in the picture. The longer you wait to start one of these claims, the longer it's going to take to, to, to resolve it down the road. And this is a case where this individual 
he's going to have long-lasting uh, impact because of this accident. I want to get to another email or two, guys, before we uh, wrap up in the next uh, few minutes here, plus the injury calculator. We have to cover that, but we'll take a, a short break here. one 990 and help at the Insurance Injury Law Show continues. Global News Radio. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six is the number. Help at the insurancelawyer.ca. And as mentioned, the injury calculator, you can find that injurycalculator.ca as well. James, tell me about it. It's free information. So if you've been injured in a car accident or um, in any other type of uh, accident where somebody else is at fault, you can go online and you can go to the injury calculator and find out how much the pain and suffering component of your legal claim might be worth. And when I say how much, what it's going to do, it's going to ask you some basic questions, very simple questions. It'll take you about 15 or 20 seconds to fill it out. Really, that's all it's going to take. When you're finished, it's going to give you a range of the value of what your claim might be worth if you were to start it. So you've been injured in an accident, you put in this information, it'll tell you your claim is worth between X and Y dollars. And the way that that's determined is essentially what we've done is we've created a database of all the legal claims across Canada that have had similar circumstances, people of a similar age with similar types of injuries, and we've looked at what the courts have awarded in those cases. And so what this is doing is saying, with your age, with your type of injury, with your circumstances, this is what you might reasonably expect if you were to start a legal claim. And so it's just free information. You don't have to do anything else once you get that information. If that's all you want, you just want to find out, great, you've got it. There's no one who's going to contact you. No one's going to bother you. You're not on some email list. Um, nothing of the kind is just free information. If you would like to take it a step further and get a consultation, there is a way to do that. You just click a button and boom, you can connect with us. But that's up to you. If you just want the information, it's there for the taking. There's no reason not to. We'll get to an email from Dan now. Dan says, uh, my father, who is 62, was visiting a mall in Newmarket last week and fell outside one of the coffee shops because of a spill. Apparently, someone else slipped at the exact same spot 30 minutes before, according to a clerk at a nearby store. My father broke his right hip and had surgery at the hospital. The doctors are saying that he needs to be monitored and will need a lot of help at home when he is released. I'm wondering if my father can be compensated for this injury, which was clearly the fault of the coffee shop. Even the manager of the coffee shop admitted that they should have put a wet floor sign. Hello. Absolutely. Uh, Dan, thank you very much for the email, and I'm very sorry for what your father is going through. And unfortunately... You know, this is a very severe injury, as, as you see now. I mean, I've dealt with a lot of individuals, and the elderly in particular, who've broken hips. And, you know, the recovery is extremely long. And generally, they have issues and impairments that follow them, you know, really for the rest of their lives. And in this case, you know, what we're looking at, obviously, is the issue of fault, who's at fault. And Dan, you're completely right. The, the coffee shop is going to be held to be at fault here. Of course, we need some more information. And particularly, we want to speak with that individual who works at a nearby store who had mentioned that somebody fell 30 minutes before. You know, there is, a, there is an obligation at law. Uh, for anyone who occupies a premises, whether it's the owner of a shop or whoever's renting that shop or whoever's taking care of, 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 of the shop to make sure that the area is reasonably safe for patrons, for people who are in, you know, walking in and about the area. And in this case, clearly that did not happen. Now, uh, to the point that James made about the injury calculator, uh, which is a fantastic online tool to figure out uh, the, you know, the quantum that this individual potentially is looking at for pain and suffering, 
you know, if you were to go on the injury calculator right now, Dan, and, and just click in a few key pieces of information within 15, 20 seconds, even less than that, you would see what it is that your father is potentially entitled to. And I would assess, based on the information you've given us, uh, without even seeing the medical documents, that he's probably going to be uh, owed in the vicinity of 100, 110, maybe even $120,000 just wow. for his pain and suffering. Now, we have to factor in issues of liability. You know, could he have avoided the spill, right? I mean, is there any fault that lies on him for not seeing where he was walking? But remember, it's not just the pain and suffering that he's entitled to. If he now needs help at home, if there's going to be hired help, or maybe there is going to be family, Dan, yourself, your, your wife, other people in the family who are going to help your father, well, they are also entitled to bring their own claims under the Family Law Act. So you see how... Even though your father is potentially entitled to a six-figure compensation package, that could easily rise up depending on the severity of the injury and the other expenses that he potentially is going to have long-term. So again, very important not to wait on these things and to give us a call so that we can have that conversation, meet with the individuals involved, and assess the case properly, and then provide the family with all of the options so they can make the decision on how to proceed. A couple of things I would add to that. Also, um, your your father's going to be entitled to any care um, that he's going to have to pay for in the future. And a lot of times, particularly when we're talking about the elderly population, they may not have access to an insurance plan, an extended health plan. And in some cases, not always, but in some cases where there is no question about who is at fault and the person has suffered what is an obvious objective injury, occasionally you will find insurance companies that are prepared to pay for rehabilitation, for medical care, because they know that if they don't, the person is likely going to be worse off. And so you can sometimes get the insurance company to agree to it. So that's something we can do that can assist even early on. The other thing that I bumped on here, though, is this happened outside. It sounds as though it happened on private property in front of a coffee shop. So that's all fine. But just on the off chance that this happened in a public space on land that's owned by the city, I would make absolutely sure, because this just happened a week ago, I would make sure that you write to the city clerk of Newmarket um, and you do so within 10 days of the accident. Because if you slip and fall on publicly owned property, you only have 10 days to notify them. You don't. I'm not saying you only have 10 days to bring a claim. You only have 10 days to notify them. And notifying them is really simple. You don't need even a lawyer to do that. You can go online and virtually every city in Canada is going to have a an area where you can submit an online notification of a potential claim. And that's all you're doing. So you're going to give them your name, um, your age, the specific location where the accident happened and the injury suffered. And as long as you've done that, you've preserved your claim, and so you're fine. Now, it sounds like in this case, it's probably not an issue. It probably happened on private property. But Dan, just to be safe, um, make sure that you or your father does this now. You said it was last week, so hopefully we're still within the 10 days. Even if it's just outside the 10 days, the courts have found justification for extending that notice period in certain situations. But you don't want to have to have them do that. You want to make sure that you're within the 10 days if it's going to apply. So please do that. And and last point on the issue of falling on public spaces, you know, despite what James just said, if you still want our help in notifying whichever city it is that you 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 you, you fell, uh, we'll be more than happy to do that. We've done that before, and and uh, again, you know, contact us as soon as you can, if only to get that information and anything else that could help you decide how to proceed. 
Guys, out of time for this week. Some good stuff there. You want to follow up with James or Savannah or the rest of the team? Simple one triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six, or help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. Again, you want to find out what the pain and suffering component of a claim, your claim, a friend's claim should be. That's simple as well. There is a tool for it called injurycalculator.ca as well. Till next time, this has been the Insurance and Injury Law Show on Global News Radio.